0: That is such a great story and such a great illustration of the, the kind of things we're talking about here, that we are ordinary people, wholehearted people. I just heard a podcast again that uh, reminded me of wholehearted people, people that are, that are joyful and content and have successful relationships and have low blood pressure and long lifespans. It's all those, those kinds of people, one of the things that they do is they don't compare themselves to other people. They recognize that they're neither above or below anybody else, that they have a story. It's just an ordinary story. But we, friends, have this this part of the equation that our God fills us with his Holy Spirit and directs us into an extraordinary journey because he's an extraordinary God. So we're ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Everyday things, big, epic, uh, world-changing, event-changing things. And that's what our our series is about. So we're looking at some different people in the scriptures that are uh, ordinary people that are... um, uh, encountering God. I um, Today, I, I, I wanted to uh, take us through the story of Deborah, which is in Judges chapter 4. In just a minute, we're going to look at all that. But I thought that was going to be cool because I thought it was going to be super ordinary and super um, interesting that she was going to be this sort of unconventional leader because women didn't lead, you know, 3,500 years ago. There were very, in our scriptures, there's all these really significant stories of women that were involved in God's plan, but in the culture at large, women didn't lead. And so, The fact she was only one of 15 judges or so that was a woman, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a great story. We'll talk about this ordinary person who just had this extraordinary journey and watched God do amazing things. But when I got into it, I realized there were three extraordinary people in this story. And then all of a sudden, my sermon was on 25 verses, and I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) So I just thought, you know what we're going to do? We're going to actually, and and so I titled it, there's three people in here. Deborah, who's an unusual leader. And then there's a reluctant warrior in this story, and then an unlikely hero that comes in at the end of the story. So there's three people who are unusual and reluctant and, uh, and, uh, and um, what was the word? Uh, uh, yeah, unlikely. And I'm like, that's us? That's so you, that you are an unlikely leader and a reluctant warrior, right? And an a unusual story. So, and God's going to use us. So I thought, well, you know what, let's do what we do when we do summer in the scriptures where um, we just get in the Word together, and I'm not going to put the whole text up. We're going to read it together, and then we'll see how much time we got left to comment on it. But I just think it's great that these three folks are used by God in the story, and we want to dive into it together. So in order to do that, because this is the sweetest mood lighting ever, and we paid big bucks uh, for this lighting, we're going to turn on the fluorescence in just a minute. So I'm going to give you a warning. So I want everybody to grab their Bibles, grab a Bible out from underneath the chair in front of you. If you're in the front row, the people behind you could maybe give you one. Uh, Feel free to. uh, Students, if there's any extra ones over there, some folks in the front row that may not have them over here, just run it right over. And we're going to turn on those fluorescent lights in, ready, three, two, one. Oh, so painful. June 11th, we uh, vote on our budget for next budget year. If you'd like to come, we have uh, new lighting actually proposed. Uh, We're going to keep these awesome chandeliers, but those. Things are going to be better, floody, and dimmy, and we're going to be able to uh, do this a little bit easier. And um, this is one of the reasons. So uh, go ahead and come to that meeting and vote for that budget. So that's June 11th. Um, we're in Judges. I'd love everybody to open up their Bibles because we're not going to have it on the screen. And so if you're my friend and I know your name and you don't have a Bible, you're going to be uh, publicly mocked. So go ahead. If you're a stranger, I won't do that to you. Judges 4, and somebody give me a page number from the Bibles that are under the church uh, 225. For Judges 4, uh, 2.25. Maybe you brought your own. Maybe you have an electronic Bible. Here's what I want to do. I want to read through the story. And and, uh, because, friends, here's the point of this exercise right now. Here's why I decided to do this. There's incredible characters in this story. And if we stop and reflect and listen and watch and read carefully, rather than, like, I need to read two chapters of my Bible today, We're going to just see that there's ordinary people that god keeps using and so if all we do is read this text and you uh find some things in it very interesting then it's a win and maybe you'll find a little more than that in fact here's what i'm going to do i'm going to ask you that if you if you will generate a question that comes out for you in this a who a what a why question then we'll i'll take a couple questions after we're done reading it and um and that's the homework is that when we, read, when, we, when we read the scriptures that we just, we ask some questions about what is this and what does it mean? And so we'll, we'll read through this, uh, this text and ma- I'll make some comments if there's any time left. So Judges 4, and this is the story of Deborah. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That, by the way, sounds like every Old Testament passage you have ever read, doesn't it? <laughs> You're like, oh my gosh, this is up and down and back and forth and forth fragile and finicky and and flaky. And and I think that's actually how we described each of you when we started this series a couple weeks ago. Again, Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Oh, okay. Can you tell we're not going to get very far? So uh, when it says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, you have to remember you guys that this isn't about God putting his big moral meter on them. And like they somehow then it went over into the red and they're like, Oh, that's evil. I mean, it is about morality, but doing evil in the eyes of the Lord means is that, remember, God, this was, He is, this is a redemptive history, and God is creating for Himself a people who would understand what it means that He's the Lord of our, of our world, and more importantly even, of our lives, our, our individual lives and our community. And he's created people for himself to say, this is what it looks like to live with God and to live for God. And doing evil in the sight of the Lord is that they kept rejecting that. And they weren't doing life his way. And they weren't doing, uh, it wasn't that they were like, oh, you know, they're kind of evil, kind of evil. Oh, they're really evil. It was, it, it, read, it's sort of a euphemism for, they wanted to live life without being under the Lordship of of God, of Yahweh. And we are those people who've inherited this, this moniker of being God's people through Christ. And so for how we are begin to, to to apply this ourselves is to say, okay, my destiny is to live God's way and live under the Lordship of Jesus. But we go back and forth. He's my Lord, he's not my Lord. I'm obedient to Him, He's not, I'm not being obedient to Him. So again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Oh, I should probably tell you, you know, I'm not going to get very far, am I? <laughs> Do you know where this is in history? In, this is 3,500 years ago, okay, basically. So this is, well, this is a ways ago. This is a long time ago. And what's happening in this, in this time is this is from, between, say, this might give you a perspective. This is between Moses... And the first kings, King Saul, and then David, who's one of the mo- most notable kings, right? And so think, if you're always kind of like, so when did this happen in history? Like, this is what happens for folks, right? We read the Bible, and we're like, I don't even know when. When are we? Is this fantasy? Is this a different planet? What? Is this 500 years ago? What are we talking about here? It's almost prehistory. That's how far along ago it is, but, uh, but not really. But, but because it's so far along ago, we don't have exact, exact dates. But think this big terms in your head. 2,000 years ago, Abraham. 1,500 years ago, rough numbers, Moses. 1,000 years ago, Solomon, David. This is kind of the time that we're talking about here. Is that not a go? Did I say a go? Before Christ. Thank you. Okay. Here's the deal. I'm so not perfect that when I misspeak like that, I just want you to raise your hand. Okay? All right? So, uh, So before... This is before Christ, so 2,000 years before Christ Abraham, 1,500 years before Christ Moses, 1,000 years before Christ David. So we're talking about, if I did my math right, that's like 3,500 years ago is this time, which is between Moses and the kings. And so we're talking about 1,400, 1,300, 1,200, 1,100-ish 1, kind of times, okay? This is when these judges were. They were leaders who, before we had a king proper, uh, before Israel did, these guys were helping administer justice and discern the Lord's will for the community. Where are we Verse one? Okay, here we go. All right, verse two. Um, so the Lord, because they had done evil, the Lord had sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan. All you need to know about Jabin is that he was one of the kings of Canaan, which was that land. That was the land that was the Canaanites lived in this, the, what we hear about it as the promised land and uh, that Israel was going to go and take possession of and be God's people there. And he was a king there, and he had been, up, um, and so apparently he had been oppressing these guys, it goes on to say, for 20 years years. And don't miss the fact that they had done evil, and so the Lord sold them into the hands of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, or Sisera, the commander of the army, was based in Harasheth Hagoyim. So all you need to know is you're already, you're like, oh, there's so many words I don't know. I'm not lost. I don't, you know what? I pronounced it like I knew how to pronounce it, okay? People who speak Hebrew now, will it's probably like this, but they didn't even write down the vowel points when they originally wrote this in Hebrew. And so the way, like, it's okay to pronounce it however you end up pronouncing it because we don't even know exactly how it was pronounced, okay? So just act real confident like me. Just say it like you know what you're doing. But what we've got here is we've got a king and we've got his general who's Sisera. Got that? Okay. Now Deborah, a prophet... Oh, well, did I miss it? three. Verse 3. Wow, we're not making much progress. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years... They cried to the Lord for help, and then sort of you see this by definition, sort of in this next verse, she becomes, Deborah becomes this, like this answer to what's happening. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife, of, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes settled and decided. Now everyone's correcting me, okay? That's awesome. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go take with you 10,000 men from these two tribes, from Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Okay, now, this is what the Lord had said. Already, you're like, okay, who's who again? You got Jabin, who's a king. He's the king of the Canaanites, okay? He's been cruelly oppressing the Israelites for over 20 years. He's got a general. What's the general's name? Say it like you know how to say it. Sisera. And now you've got Deborah. She's the judge, right? And she says, okay, but she's not a a warrior. She comes and gets her uh, general, and his name is Obama. Exactly. That's amazing. Just like it's in today's newspaper. No, it's spelled differently, right? Barak, B-A-R-A-C-K was our, our president, our former president. That's, a, that's an African word. I think it's Swahili maybe, but it means like blessing, okay? And it, it's actually a word that's a, that is, is part of it. If Do you know this? Do you know this about his name? Do you know where he got his name? You should Google it. I don't have time to tell you. It's fascinating, but it's an African name that, that came from the, a different Hebrew word originally. Did you know that? Baruch was part of his name. So anyway. I'm looking at some of these guys because I know they speak Hebrew in the front row. Um, So this is Barak. It means God's thunderbolt, which is what you need to name your next son. Okay, young couples? God's thunderbolt. All right. So that's her general. And she says, uh, the Lord has commanded you. Now, this is God's word. Go take with you, and I'm going to lead Sisera uh, to the Kishon River. I'm going to give him into your hands. God says, I'm going to win this battle to Barak or Barak. Now, something you need to know. And you guys are all got your Bibles out. It's awesome. There's nobody I can even rebuke. Something you need to know about this. And often in our mindset, our um, contemporary mindset, we get a little uncomfortable we see all these battle things. This story's going to get PG-13 in a hurry, friends. And we're like, oh, that does not feel good, especially given the fact that there's a lot of religious-based violence in our world today. You know, something I want you to understand, you've got to do a lot of good reflection and a lot of good Bible reading. I mean, unless you've read through the Old Testament over and over and over again and then read it right into the New Testament and seen how Jesus is part of this redemptive story. This is a point in time, friends, in history, a redemptive history, where God was creating A world for himself to love and be in a relationship with. And as he brought those people through these ancient cultures 3,500 years ago, they lived the way ancient cultures lived and warred and uh, um, carried on. And God kept meeting them where they were so that he could reveal himself to them. And as time went on, and God revealed Himself, and brought His Word, and His prophets spoke, and Jesus came, and 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 uh, fulfilled the Law, and so on. If so, if you're like I don't I don't understand it, but I'm getting a glimpse of what you're saying is that there's this progressive understanding of how we live for the Lord. Yeah, and the Lord just as similarly comes and meets us in our culture today, mm-hmm. and communicates His ways in a way that we could understand. This is a moment in redemptive history where 3,500 years ago, that's how it was happening and God was creating and establishing a people for himself so that the world would know, oh, we can be a people under God's lordship, okay? Happened to involve war at that time. Much more to that conversation, a lot more uh, nuances we can make, but I I want to kind of focus that on, help you kind of what to do with this war piece, right? So when we see the war passages, guys, this is not about you going to have in a holy war. This is about you knowing that the Lord battles against the forces of evil and against the things that constrain you and keep you cruelly oppressed for 20 years. By the Lord's power, he will come and set you free. He will come and bring the death blow to the things that battle against you in your spiritual journey and against the good news of God's love being spread in the world. So this is, we kind of translate that battle thing. This is historical about God, what God was doing in redemptive history, but we, we sort of translate it now into, I'm doing war against the things that keep me from being God's man, God's woman, okay? So that's kind of how we can look at these things and translate them into our lives. How are we doing? So she goes, look, this is what the Lord said. Go, go take these, this uh, battle. It's going to be yours. Verse 8. And Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. If you don't go with me, I'm not going to go. Which is what you want every general to say. <laughs> Certainly I'll go with you. Verse 9, she said, Deborah, but because of the, uh, of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah, went to Barak. so Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, and there Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. Those were these two tribes. And 10,000 men came under his command. Deborah also went with him. Now There's a little insertion that's going to come back to play at the end of the, um, of the story. But Haber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, um, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and he pitched his tent by the great tree in Za'anim, uh near Kadesh. Now, you're like, what, what, what? A relative of Moses, not an Israelite, living down in the desert, came up, had some sort of an alliance with Jabin, who was the king of the the Canaanites. And he's living in the area, and he's he's hanging out there. Probably he's the one, verse 12, who told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera summoned from Heresheth Hagoyim, "'To the Kishon River, all his men "'and all his 900 chariots fitted with iron. "'Then Deborah said to Barak, "'Go, this is the day the Lord "'has given Sisera into your hands. "'Has not the Lord gone ahead of you?' "'So Barak went down Mount Tabor "'with 10,000 men following him. "'At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera "'and all his chariots and army by the sword. "'And Sisera got down from his chariot "'and fled on foot.' So Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael. That's, and it says who, right? Does it say who? The wife of Haber, the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Haber, the Kenite. So now you got what's happened? So Barak comes down. Routes, the Lord routs the army. The word rout in the Hebrew means threw them all into a panic, like God was doing his thing. And the general, Sisera, gets out of his chariot and runs, and he runs into the tent of this Kenite's wife, Jael. She becomes the unlikely hero in this story. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my Lord, verse 18. Come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said, please give me some water. And she did him one better. She opened a skin of milk and gave him milk and covered him up. She was giving him this shelter. He's like, this is it, I'm gonna be safe because you didn't go into a woman's tent. So nobody was gonna think to look for him there The hospitality, even today in the Arab world, the hospitality code says that, uh, you know, that you wouldn't give up anybody. It was taking refuge. So this is the safest place for him. She's like, come on in. I'm going to keep you safe. And then he goes, and do more. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he said. And if someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there, say no. But Jael, Haber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple and into the ground, and he died. You think? <laughs> Just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and, and Jael went out to him and said, Come, she said, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg through his temple. Dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin king of Canaan before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin king of Canaan until they destroyed him. And then after Deborah, in the next chapter, Deborah writes a song celebrating God's goodness in that victory. At the very end of that chapter, it says, and then there was peace for 40 years. That's what God accomplished through that. Okay, wow. Okay. Half of us are like, God's word's so amazing. And the other half are like, this is the craziest thing I've ever read. What question do you have in there? Right now, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to ask me a question and I'm gonna pretend I know the answer. Like, what question? What is what's the who, what, where? Yeah, Linda. Why did she kill him? Why did JL kill him? She was in the habit of driving tent pegs through people's heads. She was part of the plan that God was doing. We don't have the background in the story, do we? We don't know what her deal was, but her Kenites had come up to make an alliance with the king of Canaan, but her ancestry was with Moses. And so she, in her heart, was part of God's movement, and God revealed it to her, spoke to her. She knew she had a secret alliance. She went against uh, her Kenite folk. I don't know, but she knew this is the enemy who's been cruelly oppressing the Israelites, and this ends now. So somehow God said, you got to put an end to this thing. Other questions that you have about this text that you saw? Yes, Sherry. Why did it take 20 years for the Israelites to finally get, tired? <laughs> to finally get tired of being cruelly oppressed? <laughs> that is a great question. <laughs> in, in fact, I'm going to use it as a, just put up the first slide for me, the, the, for my first point, uh, This is how extraordinary people, this this is how God's extraordinary plan is accomplished by ordinary people, is that they cry out to the Lord. And friends, if I had a parenthesis there, I'd say they cry out to the Lord early and often. But do you see yourself in this? That the oppression and the bondage, things are not as they should be, but we're living with this, this isn't right, but rather... Then crying out to the Lord and making the changes that need to happen, they lived under this this oppression for 20 years. We're reading a little more into the text than is exactly there, but it is a great question and a great observation, Sherry, mostly because it agrees with my first observation, but I think it's a great observation that they cry out. Friends, we're we're people who cry out to the Lord. We're people who look at what's around us and we identify, and you've got to get quiet to do this, we identify stuff, right? And we go, this, is, this isn't right. This shouldn't be. And sometimes we identify it in little, small ways, right. and some of them we identify it in big, giant, world-changing, go-to-the-UN, Gina ways. Dan and Amy, every time I turn around, they're in Haiti or Africa or doing something, and they're like, well, nobody else is going. We're gonna go, this isn't right. And so we're people who cry out to the Lord and go, you gotta fix this. And he, when we cry out to the Lord, he starts raising up you and other people around you. That's this story. Other people around you. He starts raising up those people to come have his way. He's waiting for that stuff to happen. They cried out to the Lord. In fact, let's just go through the, I got two minutes to do the other one. Let's go through the, we'll go ahead and put all three of the other ones out there. They were open to unconventional leadership. This is what happened. This is how extraordinary things happen through ordinary people. Then they're also open to extraordinary, I mean, unconventional leadership. This is what started me down this path as I started thinking, this is wild. This woman was leading 3,500 years ago. She was the leader of Israel. That for everybody was, can you imagine how many Israelites were like, you know what? I don't care what she says. I don't believe she can hear God. There was that whole thing going on. They didn't necessarily think that a woman could hear God. Remember that, it's sort of trite, but we all know this. We've heard it. You know, the, the laws were that a woman couldn't, couldn't testify in court because her testimony wasn't, you know, like they took two women. to to equal one man's testimony kind of a deal. It's ridiculous. And we're way past that. Are we way past that? But we we need to be people who understand that there are prejudices in us and that God could be leading us through the stuff that we never could have imagined, whether it's an ageism thing, whether it's a classism thing, whether it's a racism thing, whether, it, whether it's misogyny, that God can, can lead us however God wants to lead us. He used a donkey to lead people. And God's people do extraordinary things when they're open to unconventional leadership, that we would be willing to open our eyes every day and say, God, is this you? God, is this you? Is this you, God? Are you leading me right now? What's happening right here? That takes open eyes, sensitive heart, tender heart before the Lord. That in a business meeting or in a, at a graduation speech or in a conversation where you're giving advice to somebody else, all of a sudden you're receiving something. You're like, that's God talking to me right now. We call, I call that the thin place, the thin place between our world and our time and this very spiritual presence of God, heavy glory of God weight where I'm like, God's talking to me right now. We're people who cry out to the Lord, who are open to God leading in all kinds of ways. And that's the Deborah was a woman. That was the whole point of that beginning of the sermon and why I brought you there in verse four. Third, God's people, ordinary people, do extraordinary things because, by needing each other. That's all the way through this text. I started thinking there's going to be a sermon about Deborah, but I get in there and you've got these three people. You've got an unlikely leader, a woman. You've got a reluctant warrior, Barak. You've got an unusual hero. I, you know, I confuse those two, but you know what I'm saying? You've got jail at the end who comes in at the end and drives a tent peg through. Listen, why do we need each other, friends? Why would they need each other to do this? Two reasons come to mind right now, really fast and easy and simple. One is because we need each person's gifts and strengths. Everybody had a different thing they brought to the table. I was just, I mentioned a graduation, I was just at a graduation this weekend at, from a business school, and one of the things that's just fascinating about that is how they gather people that, from all kinds of interdisciplinary ways and look at a problem from different directions, and they are so humble to recognize that what they can accomplish by looking at a problem in the world from different disciplines, including the market forces at work, will solve these problems. That's, what, how, that's how God set us up to work. And We need each other with our different strengths and gifts. Secondly, not only do we need each other's strengths and gifts, we need each other's faith because we don't have enough faith on our own. We just don't. That's why Barak's such a great example. I thought he was going to be the loser in this story. I thought he was going to be the, like, dude, you got called a girl. You know? She's like, he goes, the Lord's sending you out. Go win this battle. And he goes, well, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. Like, are you seriously, you're telling me that you're not going to go until unless mommy comes with you, like your babysitter? It's a total put-down in that culture, right? And then she's like, okay, well, then I'll go with you. But because of that, the Lord's going to give the glory to a woman. And she meant JL. that later on, the story was going to come out, and the woman was going to be the one that got this glory. And we're like, well, in our world, we go, (laughs) duh. Like, (laughs) we totally get that. They need each other because Barak didn't have enough faith. He didn't have enough faith. He looked at this environment. He looked at this 900 chariots, and he's like, I don't, I don't think I can do this. He needed her Like We need each other because he's like, if you come and keep talking to me about what God's saying, if we keep reminding each other that we're on this epic destiny, that God is creating this redemptive history and we're right in the middle of it, I'm going to need you to keep my faith up. I'm going to need you to keep me encouraged, friends. That's why we say it here over and over and over again. It's why Art said it during his little announcement time that we believe you grow best when you're connected with other people. Why? Because none of us have faith strong enough to get us into that kind of epic living because we keep losing it. We keep losing our faith. We keep losing our faith. We keep losing our faith. And all three of these guys together pulled off this amazing story of what God freed them from cruel oppressors and brought peace to the land. And the last one is, that this is how God's ordinary people accomplish extraordinary things, is that they step out in faith when the time comes for action. Verse 14, Deborah goes... They're all amassing. The armies are happening, all that kind of stuff. In verse 14, Deborah goes, go. You see it? What does she say? This is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you, right? Something like that? Go. It's time. Go. You got to go. And for all the wimpiness, look at Barak's courage. It says, so Barak went. He did it. He stepped out. She goes, now's the time. We got to go. God's at work. Let's do this. And he went. Both of them stepped out. And when JL, the time came for JL to put an end to this nastiness, she drove a tent peg through a guy's head. Now, I, I don't know much about her, but I am certain that was not her habit. Nobody gets used to that. She did a very difficult thing. They stepped out when the time came for action. And I think the only thing I want to point out before I'm done and I'm over time is this. They, take, they took their first steps. They didn't know how it was gonna happen. God had spoken and said, listen, I'm gonna win this battle, you gotta step out. But they didn't see the victory until they stepped out. If you read the text and you look at it, verse seven, the Lord's commanding you go, I'm gonna rout this army, I'm gonna hand, hand them over to you, I'm gonna do it, verse seven, I'm gonna do it. But they didn't do it, the Lord didn't do it until after verse 15, which is when after it says, he advanced, he took a step, He went forward. Friends, we're people who cry out to the Lord and gather the faith of others around us. We feel the stuff that God puts in us to love people, to adopt babies, to go to other countries, to to work on my difficult marriage. I mean, all the things that are epic, God, kingdom of God, lordship of Jesus stuff, small and big in our lives. We, We gather all that. We have to at some point take a step or we're just talking about it. We're just talking about it. So what we believe and what we say is meaningless until at some point God's people take one step in the direction of what we believe God's tugging on our heart. And then the plan starts to unfold. At his advance, the Lord routed the army. That's what it says. Once he took a step, friends, the Lord routed the army. Once he stepped out in faith... And he stepped out in faith after their cries to the Lord, after responding to unconventional leadership, after together having enough strength to do it, he took one step. And then God unfolded this unbelievable victory. And there was peace for 40 years. That's us. That's how God's people, ordinary people, see God's extraordinary plans unfold.